Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. This is episode number 162, 162. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, please email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section on Podbean, which is where we create the podcast, and uh, that's our kind of our resident home. So, anyway, questions have been getting uh, a little bit thin lately, so go ahead and send them all in because they're a big part of the show. And if you've got a question, I'm willing to answer it. Honestly, nobody pays me. Uh, I don't. I'm not here to hawk any products or anything else. Um, go ahead and ask me, and I will tell you. Okay, let's uh, let's get to it. Uh, you know, first of all, the biggest thing in the news is the there were three or four mass shootings in California. What they call I, I hate the term mass shooting because it it lends a an element of randomness or accidentalness to this. Um, what it is, it's it's a murder. You know, there were several murders in California. Um, You know, and of course, Gavin Newsom, gruesome Newsom, gruesome Newsom is talking about how it's, you know, a Second Amendment problem and everything. What he doesn't realize is he's the problem. He and his ilk are the problem. They don't, they openly have a society and a architecture of laws which prevent people from exercising their right to self-defense. And when you have that, you're going to have victims. They will never admit that their policies generate victims. Um, you know, it's just it's just that simple. And uh, I don't know why he thinks that creating more victims is going to ha- somehow make them all safe. If everyone's a victim, I guess they're all safe. I, I don't know. But uh, especially the New Year shooting, um, you know, personal grudge involving domestic issues with an ex-wife and all this and you know this 72 year old man who's got some I mean it, it looked like he'd been at the bottom of the lake an old you know Mac 10 with some sort of it looked like a homemade silencer but I think probably what it was was just a an extension on the barrel that you held on to um, you know somebody who was had any level of training who had a decent concealed carry weapon uh, could have stopped the guy. I guarantee it. You know, it's this this guy was 72. This was not Jackie Chan in there uh, wiping people out. This was not, you know, a high-speed dude at all. This was just some guy in there, just random. And the only reason that he was able to perpetrate that was that no one was armed and would stop him. If, if somebody in there had been armed, this would have been a footnote. He might have, through the element of surprise, injured or killed one or two people, but he would have been stopped. And, you know, the press won't report it, but there are numerous incidences of concealed carry holders stopping someone who's perpetrating something just like this. And, you know, frankly, I just don't have the time to catalog them, uh, but there's, they're on and on and on. 
and uh, first of all that does not fit the media narrative that does not fit and a lot of times it doesn't fit their racial stereotyping like the case where the black woman who was carrying concealed uh, stopped the guy with the AR-15 from shooting up the wedding you know there was there was one person killed she killed him because he was getting ready to, to start something and uh, you know that never that never gets that person should have been given a medal that lady should have been given a medal and instead it gets buried um, by our corrupt news media you just can't believe them I mean you know it ain't the days of Walter Cronkite anymore that's for sure uh, so we got gruesome Newsome, but he's to blame these are at his doorstep and uh, if they do more laws which you know frankly I with the Supreme Court decisions about being able to carry and you know the recent one um, that was uh, against New York uh, you know the some of these some of these states banned states they're on the run because a lot of their stuff and, and Illinois is a perfect example hey they're trying to do a you know an assault weapons ban and blah 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 blah, blah. and you know what that's going to run up against the courts it's already it's already gotten a stay and it's just not going to happen because it's not constitutional and it's not right it's not right that's the worst part about it is it's unjust and it's unconstitutional so they're you know uh, good Lord willing, these things will these things will work themselves out, and we will we will uh, jam it right down their throats. You know, we have a right to defend ourselves. You have that right. They can't just take it away from you and turn. You know, it's it, it's they want to turn our society over to criminals, and I mean, you see it. You see it. The the refusals to prosecute, the no bail nonsense that they're they're trying to do uh the fact that you know you can essentially walk into a store practically anywhere but most likely in a large city steal whatever you want and people are told just don't interfere with you just don't interfere um it's it's a very very bad situation we're in um when you turn your society over to criminals what do you think that's going to look like what do you think that's going to look like um it's going to look as bad as uh uh well as as our border does where cartels are running everything i mean look at northern mexico look at mexico you want to be like mexico i don't think so i don't think we want to be like mexico at all so i think uh huh definitely you know the the gruesome newsomes of the world have to go away they have to go you know i realize that feinstein doesn't even know what planet she's on um you know that whole thing but these people have got to go you know and part of the responsibility of government is having term limits we have term limits for the president but we don't have term limits for anything else and I think term limits are probably a good thing. I mean, some of these power brokers who who just get this incredible amount of wealth 
from being from working in the public sector you know tell me that's not corruption tell me somebody who's not a senator for 50 years isn't corrupt and i'll show you joe biden the he is the you know with all of the all of the things we're talking about you know the secrets and all the rest of it you know the, make no mistake the democratic party wants to dump biden and the reason they want to dump him is because hunter's an embarrassment and he's he's too old they know this guy is basically his brain is silly putty they know it and uh you know at first they thought hey it would be fun well i'll just have this figurehead that we can control behind the scenes but the democratic party establishment even thinks that's a bad idea now so they're using the classified documents you know they will dump biden they will convince him not to run and uh the worst part about that is they're okay with the corruption when it came out when it came out think of this that hunter biden was leasing the house from joe biden the house at the corvette and all the classified documents were in when when he was renting that house he was paying fifty thousand dollars a month now this was a guy who just gotten kicked out of the navy for drugs you know they went through a whole thing to get him an age waiver so he could go be a a navy jag and uh you know he's he's in for a few months and they do a drug test and lo and behold he comes up and he's using so um a guy with that with no real job or visible means of support is renting his daddy's house for fifty thousand dollars a month now i'm like you i've seen the pictures okay and and you know biden's got a nice place and he's got a corvette in the garage and it's a nice place but it's face it it is not fifty thousand dollars a month nice and especially when you don't have a job they narrow the scope of the investigation so nobody really looks at that but where was hunter getting that kind of dough that he could do that and doesn't it kind of smell like money laundering that uh, you know it's like the uh it, it does smell like money laundering it's like the show tv show breaking bad where you know they have a car wash and they're using it just to launder their drug proceeds um by creating fictional customers who come in and you know tax gets paid on the money taxes get paid and everything else that that is money laundering from somewhere hunter biden was getting a whole bunch of loot that face it people who have his kind of problems usually don't get they usually don't get that kind of money and uh, he was funneling it to his daddy so tell me that's not corruption influence peddling and money laundering but they're going to use those things to get rid of him because basically the the word's out on hunter the word is out so he's an embarrassment joe's actions and you know wandering around or or the the classic this is awesome where he mistook the uh, Salvation Army guy for part, for head of the Secret Service. Hey, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's really awesome. So they they know that Joe is not going to last. I think on some level they're trying to rehabilitate Harris. She's that's Mission Impossible. 
So Biden and Harris are going to be are going to be done. The border has killed Harris. The border has killed Harris. There's no way she can come back from that. She was in charge the whole thing of that particular project, and the whole thing's a mess, a complete unadulterated mess. So here's my I don't want to say prediction, but here's what I think is the way forward for them. They're going to because of the documents, because of the Hunter thing, they're going to convince Biden not to run. They're going to tell everybody, hey, we just didn't like the way he was handling these documents. Therefore, they get the high ground, and that's something else they can leverage against Trump. Because right now, Trump has been given the get-out-of-jail card because it seems like almost everybody has some sort of classified documents. Even though Trump's were under lock and key, and as president, he was authorized to declassify them. So, anyway, we'll see how this all shakes out. But, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. Ah, the next thing is uh, our friend of the podcast suggested that we have Fort Rachel Levine. <laughs> because, after all, she's a great American. Or, I should say, it is a great American. Um, in the Democrats' eyes, anyway. So, well, why not just name a fort or something after it? Um, she's a creature... A national embarrassment um, you know this this whole thing what well, a fiasco you know they they were okay they're okay with this weirdness they're okay with it you saw it with that Sam Brimpton guy <laughs> yeah what a again another another excellent member of the Democratic elite right there now you know the funny part is, of course they're they're making all these noises about you know renaming bases and everything. Um, there is a place in the Pacific Northwest called Fort Lewis, which is now part of Joint Base Lewis McCord, McCord being the Air Force part. But one of the things they never accounted for was that Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame, who the um, who the Ford is named after, he owned slaves, and he took a slave with him on his trek, you know, to to map out the Louisiana Purchase. So when Lewis and Clark went west, so did one of <laughs> so did one of Lewis's slaves. So, hmm, that'll be a problem. And it's a problem that, you know, they're so ignorant they don't even study history. They don't even really know anything. Um, yeah, dumping Biden. Oh, yeah, let's go. You know, of course, every January, they hold the SHOT Show. And it's 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 made into this big event. You know, they try to make the SHOT Show. And, and it's a trade show. They try to make it into kind of a red carpet event where it has after parties. And there's, like, industry shooting days where people take their stuff out to the range and, you know, let people try the new... All the new stuff. Uh, it's been a lot of hype. I mean, uh, I have never gone to it because it's really you have to be an industry insider. There are there are podcasters who go. Uh, certainly, I don't think I would get credentials. Um, you know, there's there's a whole lot of lot of nonsense attached to that, and and you know, frankly, you know, great, you're you know you're hawking your goods. Um, I, there's a better venue for that. That's the NRA show and convention. Meetings and convention, I guess. 
Um, you know, they, they do the same thing. You can go around and see all the cool stuff and everything. But there's stuff that does come out of the SHOT Show. That, that's, usually, that's usually where companies unveil new products. So, you know, there are a few things there. And I don't know if these things are exactly new, but... Some company is trying to bring back the STG-44 again. The STG-44, often called the world's first assault rifle, was this very futuristic uh, German weapon from World War II that it was, you know, it had a 30-round magazine. It, it fired a uh, um, intermediate cartridge based an eight-millimeter intermediate cartridge. Uh, very, very cool gun in a lot of ways. It looks really. I mean, for 1940s, it looks very futuristic. As a matter of fact, U.S. Army didn't really even know what it was because very few of them were used on the uh, Western Front. And they just thought it was, hey, this is another submachine gun. It was, it was viewed as a submachine gun. Um, the Eastern Front was a different matter. They used tens of thousands of these things, and it made a big impression on the... Uh, the Red Army in the Soviet Union. They looked at that and said, holy cow, what is this thing? Because it was so effective. Um, you know, especially, you know, you look upon the the Mauser bolt action with its five-shot capacity, and all of a sudden you have a semi-automatic, or and actually with select fire, uh, that's got a 30-round magazine that's got effectively the same combat range. And wow, that's, that's a huge leap forward. Um, it, it leaped, it leapt, I should say, it leapt past, you know, the the 8mm Mauser uh, semi-automatic rifles that Germany was, you know, desperately trying to develop. And it really, uh, it really gave them a very advanced weapon, which, you know, was, was uh, very effective towards the end of the war. Not enough to make a difference in the end result, but it certainly got everyone's attention. And, you know, there's no real secret that the AK-47 was influenced in some manner. It wasn't a copy of the STG-44, but it was certainly heavily influenced by it, you know, just in dimensions and capacity and, and a few other things, simplicity and a few other things. Um, my whole deal is, is that, number one, if they take pre-orders, don't do it because every time you do a pre-order, you could you you could wind up getting burned, unless it's a really uh, um, reputable company. So um, the only time I ever did a pre-order was um, when I got the uh, DSA Israeli FAL, you know, and that was hey, you know, put in the order. We're only going to make so many. Put in your order and get on the list, and you paid for it right up front. So hey, no worries, paid for it, did it, so, and that's a reputable company, I knew that they would produce an FAI, I knew that they would do what they say, some of these other guys, I don't know, here's the other thing, how many, how many people are actually going to buy an STG 44, and I don't know what the pricing is, but I would assume it's going to be more than two grand, I would just assume that, could be as much as four grand, you know, what's the market for that, and, you know, how are they going to do that, they Obviously, you could make a limited run. That would be something. Um, you know, I think it's a... Uh, um, it services a very small market. A very, very niche market of people who want that 
um, basically have the money. So after they produce a few, it's, I don't know. I don't know where it all goes. There's just not that large a market, I don't believe. Um, for, and we even saw that with the uh, STG 4422, which I have, which, you know, face it, I'm never going to have an actual STG 44. They just, the, the price of that is just, it's just not happening. The, um, so if I don't have that, you, you are forced into the 22 long rifle one, which is not a bad gun. It has all the same, basically the same weight and the same handling characteristics, but it's in 22 long rifle. Um, and a lot of people have a problem with that. I, I personally don't because, you know, it is what it is. Um, they would have been smarter to bring that out in 9mm Parabellum because then it would have been center fire, would have had a little more kick. You could you could uh, say, well, it's a nine millimeter pistol, pistol caliber carbine. Uh, it would have been very cool in nine millimeter, and I think it would have been much more successful. So um, they should have done that, but they put it out in twenty two, and you know for a while they they sold for a while they were like a five hundred dollar item. Then they went down and and they're a three hundred dollar item. And, and that's because as cool as it is, a lot of people like it. A lot of people will look at it. But will they plunk down the cash? Because what are they really going to use it for? Um, one of the mistakes they made with the 22 caliber one was they didn't have an authentic period style scope and scope mount for it. So, you know, if they'd had that, you know, that might have been a little more popular. But, um, the bottom line is people weren't going to buy it because it's really not that comfortable a rifle to use. It really isn't. Um, so I would, uh, um, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be very cool, but when you actually pick it up, you go, this isn't really as cool as it looks. Now, I have picked up real ones, just so that you know. I have picked up uh, genuine ones, and so has friend of the podcast. He's done that um, numerous times. But... I don't believe that the, um, um, you know, it, it's just not that comfortable a weapon, and it's not going to be as cool. The AK, even though the controls are in a worse place, is 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 a lot more. I I feel comfortable to use. Um, there's another thing out there, the Henry Homesteader, which looks a lot like the old Winchester 1907. Not an exact copy. Because, you know, they're Henry, and why would they copy anything? Um, but anyway, it looks like that. It's a 9mm pistol caliber carbine. MSRP is like a 1000 bucks. You know, why anybody would go with anything other than Ruger for a 9mm PCC, I don't know. I, I kind of understand the AR ones. I kind of understand the AK ones. But I really think... Um, and those are all based on the pistol braces that the ATF is now desperately trying to get rid of. So we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, it's it's really a foolish kind of thing. I mean, when I first looked at it, my first inclination was, why 9mm? If you've got a th- nearly $1,000 to spend, do you really want to spend it on a 9mm PCC? And the answer is, well, maybe you have a use for it. Okay. I would have thought, at least as an option, if not as a primary, 
a 38 Super would have been a much better cartridge for it. Now, 38 Super is harder to find. Um, you know, there, so there's always that. Are we are we now being forced into nine millimeter because of the economy? Because it's it's some of the least expensive ammunition because we're making a lot of it because there's so many nine millimeter guns. It's everything converting to nine millimeter, nine millimeter, like the uh, the 1911s are. Dudes are still crazy for these 2011s and 2211s and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it is nine. You know, to me, as a cartridge, nine millimeter is it's 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 fine. But there are a lot of other things I like to shoot too. So, um, yeah, if everything's just gonna become nine millimeter, that's not gonna be it's not gonna be very much fun. And I'll, to be honest, a nine millimeter pistol caliber carbine. Uh, you know, I've I've shot them. They're just they're they're just not that intriguing. I mean, they're they're just not. So, uh, yeah, if you kind of want that, I I would see the only real use for that. It, it might make a nice little you know ranch gun or farm gun if you're carrying nine millimeter anyway, which is a poor choice to carry on a farm or ranch. But um, yeah, anyway, that's that's what it is. But at least it could give you that that vaunted illusion that of ammo commonality that somehow everybody thinks is a great idea until they actually use it in practice and discover that one of two things has happened your your handgun is either overpowered because you're using because you're carrying a 44 magnum and maybe you're not a great 44 magnum shot with a handgun and then your rifle is reasonably powered or you've got a reasonably powered handgun like in nine millimeter and all of a sudden now um, you have a underpowered rifle so there you go um, you, can, you know pay your money and take your choice on that one you know one of the other things that always comes out on the the videos or, or the uh, um, the news releases or the shill articles that you see on SHOT Show is there's always a plethora of new bolt-action rifles that are, you know, the latest and greatest, you know, a hundred and twenty, thirty-year-old design now. Um, and, and these are these are nice rifles. They're beautiful, and uh, some are designed for hunting, which, you know, every SHOT Show since the first one, has always had some sort of new hunting rifle which is lighter more powerful this that, and the other and or they have some sort of I, I, precision rifle I, I hate to use the word tactical but that's kind of where they where they go you know they got all that um, yeah that's just you know you, I just funnel through that I'm, I'm not interested in fifteen hundred to four thousand dollar bolt action rifles that don't even have a scope on them so <laughs> that's the uh, that's a dealio on that uh, last thing is the uh, and this is something that I don't really track because I don't live in this area uh, but there are several states I, I guess there's more than several there's probably a lot of states where you know rifle hunting of deer is not was not allowed but now they allow the straight walled cartridge which 12 gauge is one and so now we have 350 legend and 
several others that are out there. The latest one being the 360 Buckhammer, which is a straight-walled case based on the 3030 Winchester, which is what the 3855 was. But this must be a little bit longer and loaded to higher pressure. Um, and this will obviously, you know, if you're using the 3030 case, uh, that's going to come out in, in two things lever gun most assuredly and then possibly a bolt action gun uh, i even saw there was one article where they showed the the latest thing from ruger was a uh, a ruger scout rifle in 350 legend hmm so that's interesting but getting back to this buck hammer uh i since i don't live in an area that requires that um this is just not something that i track uh, my my observation with those cartridges are that again um, you better make sure you have a reliable source of ammo uh, or else uh, you're going to be stuck and when you do find ammo it is not cheap because it's always going to be kind of the hunting premium ammunition and yeah so um, I find that uh, none of that there's no nothing in that whole package that attracts me to those even though i think like 350 legend some of the cartridges are cool um definitely 350 legend is cool the old 3855 is definitely cool so would the buckhammer i mean it's not that these things aren't cool it's just that i have no use for them and i hate buying things that have been created out of a well i'll say they'll be been created out of a regulatory requirement you know you can't use that but you can have this so somebody creates this um, you know I would just as soon have something else so there there you are with that so those are the things in SHOT Show um, you know a lot of hype to me it's a little hoity-toity I don't really I don't really dig it um, there's also a lot of well like the STG 44 it may turn out to be a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's wishful thinking. It's a mirage. How many times have, have people announced something and they never actually do it? And, you know, the Hill and Mac company, which tried to make the STG about six, seven years ago, they were the same way. Um, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors. They show a few prototypes, but it's never really available. And so there you go. Uh, it, it appears that they're uh, the industry is trying to generate five, seven pistols. I think uh, PSA has one. Of course, Ruger's had one. Of course, the original, the FN, is out there. Um, you know, and the the problem again, you can debate whether the pistol is a good thing, a bad thing, a good carry pistol, a good defensive pistol. You can debate all that. But the bottom line is, is that uh, you're never going to find it in reasonably priced ammo. So what good is it? What what really good is it? I mean, unless you're so, well, unless you're Hunter Biden wealthy. Now, if you can afford a $50,000 a month house, that's really not that nice. Um, maybe you can afford, you know, case upon case upon case of 5.7 and, and do that. Um, you know that makes the argument for the nine millimeter even stronger at least you can get ammunition for it so 
And the, the fact of the matter is 5.7... I don't like any of the 5.7 pistols. They, they're they a little oddly proportioned. Out of necessity, because of the length of the cartridge, they, um, they really do have... You know, kind of an outsized, kind of a longer, thinner grip. Um, they they do have kind of a very awkward appearance about them. Oh, you know, it looks like they kind of look like a 1911 style pistol that's kind of been <laughs> run over by a steamroller or something. And it's like flatter and longer and and just weirder. Um, so so that's it. Um, God, I think it's Keltec makes one that takes the. PS90 magazines, it's it's a contraption, um, and you're not going to shoot it in a way of a traditional handgun, so it'll be, uh, or at least very comfortably or, or well, so very interesting. All right, we would now move into my favorite part, and again, if you have questions, send them to me, and I will answer them, but I did manage to dig up some for this time, so question and answers. Um, and this is the first one. What 9mm Parabellum ammo do you recommend for self-defense? And that's easy. I don't recommend any. Um, it's not my job to make recommendations. If it were my job to make recommendations, I would be... I'd, I, I couldn't afford to unless somebody was <laughs> was bankrolling me. Um, uh, unless Hunter Biden was renting my house for $50,000 a month. In which case, I'd find somewhere else to live, and I would do testing. Um, all of the defensive ammo, here's what I will say, and this is not a recommendation. This is just my observation. All the defensive ammo seems to work extremely well when it's shot into block gelatin. And the truth of the matter is, they've always worked well. The, those gelatin tests go back to probably the late 60s, early 70s, maybe even earlier. But those things have been around, and everybody's hollow point does really well. Um, how they do in actual real life is is anecdotal, and you know I have no doubt that they've made improvements to the hollow point since the 70s. I'm not saying it's all the same. What I'm saying is is that uh, you know there's still variables in its performance. Not everyone is always going to you know, mushroom and expand and perform the way it does in gelatin when you're hitting something other than gelatin. So my, I've kind of come around on this. I have carried nine millimeter hollow points. Um, but again, the cost, you're making a mistake if you don't practice a lot with the ammunition you carry. And here's why it's a mistake. Um, everybody usually has a few different magazines for their carry gun or the gun they shoot the most and that if that's in 9mm and that's your defensive gun you need to test every one of those magazines with that load and under different conditions you know does this stuff always work I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a range and seen the guy, uh, uh, someone there with a firearm with the correct ammo but it's usually some sort of exotic a hollow, hollow points of some type or some other deal and somehow 
everything together does not work well. The shooter, the gun, the ammunition, the magazines. There's some glitch in there where the thing is jamming every third or fourth round and nobody can explain it. You try another magazine and it works. Okay? Well, if you don't practice a lot with your carry ammunition, um, you may pick up that magazine that doesn't work and then where are you? You're you're clear you know you're you're in trouble when you're actually when you actually have to use it for self-defense so I I tend to go my observation is the simplest way is find 124 grain full metal jacket 9 millimeter NATO ammunition that's what every 9 millimeter gun is designed to fire that's though that is the standard load that is the baseline and it's good ammunition yes it does unless it hits a bone it is not going to deform or move um, but it's it's uh, not now it, it's not just 124 grain 9mm ammunition you gotta get 9mm NATO because it's loaded a little bit hotter it's more powerful it cycles the gun better because it's got the additional power so you you are using a very good look and it's cheap enough it's about 20 bucks a box which isn't cheap but and it's probably even lower now you can probably get a better deal on it somewhere but it's a load you can practice with and you're practicing with the same ammunition you're carrying it's powerful good ammunition excellent reliability will probably work in magazines that may be problematic with with the hollow points or guns that are problematic with hollow points there are certain guns that just will not you can take two identical guns and I did this with nine millimeter guns they were both World War II German wartime p38s and I made my cast bullet load my nine millimeter cast bullet load for it uh, for both of them one of them it worked flawlessly shot point of aim was excellent but just as good as any factory ammunition the other one it jammed every third round same ammo same style guns and and really they were almost identical guns and I switched magazine it wasn't a magazine problem whatever it was one gun I assume it was spring that something was up with the springs because the, the uh, P38 has the two return springs I assume it was something with these springs and um, I think that uh, you know whatever it was one gun shot it brilliantly the other gun didn't like it at all and they're almost the same there's no accounting for that because your friend's gun which may be identical to yours shoots something brilliantly does not guarantee yours will there's a reasonably good chance but it doesn't guarantee it and too many people carry stuff based on well this works for him it'll work for me how many times have people bought hollow points just stick them into their magazine stick them into their carry gun and go around the day and don't even don't even uh, um, test fire it and I will say that that's a larger nobody's ever going to admit that a lot of people won't admit that but you know what happens. You know what happens all the time. 
So maybe it's better to go back to the retreat to the baseline and say, this may not be the most high-speed, effective ammunition, but I know its reliability and its functionality are good, and I know its performance, while not stellar, is good enough. You know, it's good enough. Police and, and military around the world use it. So it is, it's good. It's not ineffectual. Um, don't fall into this trap that, you know, this pistol round is worthless because it's FMJ. It's not. It's not worthless. Um, and reliability, being able to shoot, is a lot of times going to uh, essentially be the most valuable attribute of that ammunition. Now realize, yes, it's going to penetrate. Yeah, it's going to do all these things. But practice with it, and uh, your confidence level will go a lot higher. But it's not my job to make a recommendation. There's just too much out there. Okay, I've answered this before, I'm sure. What is your opinion on the scout rifle? And that circles back to, well, the scout rifle now is a lot different than what it was. I mean, now we have them in 350 Legend, which never would have fit Cooper's definition of a scout rifle because you were supposed to be able to bring down big game at, I believe it was 500 yards with a scout rifle. That was part of his original definition. I'm going by memory, but I remember a lot of this. I was a kid when a lot of this came out. So I, I kind of get uh, kind of get scout rifles. Okay. Uh, first of all, the scout rifle was it was kind of a 1970s deal. Um, and it was... A lot of the people who liked it... It was originated by Jeff Cooper, one of the founding fathers of shooting and while he did have a lot of great ideas and a lot of great things um, if you remember just to do a sidebar quick sidebar uh, guns and ammo magazine uh, he used to write for them he wrote Cooper on handguns and then passed that on to somebody else and then towards the end of his life he wrote um, Cooper's Corner which were the last two pages of the magazine and those were just his anecdotes his thoughts on a variety of things mostly gun related but not always so when you got guns and ammo in the mail the first thing you did was go to the very everybody I knew the first thing they did was go back to Cooper's corner and read that because it was it was so entertaining and so good it was probably some of the best some of the best gun content that's ever been written it, it really was awesome in in that type of format I'm obviously there have been a lot of great books and other things but you know, it, it was it was there. And, of course, when he was unable to do that, they, you know, that's when they went to hunting wheels, you know, trying to trying to appeal to the four-wheel drive crowd and, and everything. But they never recaptured something that was so good that that was the first thing that you uh, uh, turned to in the magazine were the last two pages. The first place you went were the last two pages. But anyway, Cooper, Cooper, God, Cooper theorized that hey um you know the modern rifle and, and at that time kind of the the modern hunting rifle was remington 700 adl bdl uh weatherbees all these other things were, were very much sporting rifles 
he thought there should be kind of a general purpose rifle and, and this was actually his first mistake uh, the general purpose rifle would be something that you could use to hunt big game you could in a pinch use it to hunt something smaller you could in a pinch use it as a tactical weapon um, and it would be designed to be very fast handling for a bolt-action rifle and it would have a forward mounted well the scope was not originally necessity but we'll get to that uh, they wound up with a forward mounted scope low-powered long-eye relief scope and they were designed to engage fleeting or quick targets so it, it was it was really designed to hit a target that's just not standing out there but something that might be moving or something that might be moving and stop something that you would need a quick shot on and that's kind of where the tactical part of that came in um, the original spec the original specifications were and he held scout rifle conferences which you know that must have been like sitting through a bad college class of of just geezers pontificating but he, he got the idea first of all the the first rifle that ever looked like that was a World War II German K98 that had that forward mounted scope and I think that's that's kind of what influenced him I think and he, he actually even referenced that um, now he, he didn't think the K98 was a particularly good platform because it was too heavy um, it was too heavy it had it was an eight millimeter Mauser which he didn't really care for um, you know so there were there were a bunch of reasons why that was not the prototype what he thought was more of the prototype was the Enfield jungle carbine which was shorter and that's a 303 um, you know that's the number four Lee Enfield which is shortened it's got a flash hider on it a very cool looking gun you know very cool and he thought that was like the scout rifle but it was in 303 nobody was currently making it um, 303 ammunition was really limited there were a whole bunch of reasons why although this rifle hit the parameters of what he was looking for there were, there were just too many obstacles to keep it from being the one and and uh, two of the things that he thought had to be on a scout rifle was clip loading you know magazine charger loading you know stripper clips just like 1903 and Mauser 98s and all that any military bolt action rifle had some system of doing that or and it had to have iron sights it had to have iron sights and so that was a rifle it didn't necessarily have to have a scope that kind of came on a little bit later then they got into the long eye relief scope then they found that you know basically the ideal it had to be able to um, maybe I was wrong maybe it was you had to be able to take down big game at 300 yards and hit a man at 500 yards I think that's what it was so my earlier statement might have been incorrect so that that was as I remember it that was it um, so the long I there was no real rifle that did that so they went and they got the there was a rifle though that did fit it but it wasn't being made anymore and that was the Remington Mohawk 660 which had this long rib like a quarter rib that went down the barrel so you could affix a and it was sturdy enough you could affix the scope to it 
and gunsmiths could, you know, um, work on the bolt handle and, and glass bed it and do all those things that they did back in those days to make it into a scout rifle. But it wasn't being made anymore. So, you know, you had to go find one. Um, fast forward a few years, everybody was kind of enamored with these things. Fast forward a few years, Steyr comes out with one that's like 2800 bucks, which in the 1980s is a lot of money. That's a lot of dough. And it was it was really goofy. It was based on a Steyr action, not really a Mauser action. Um, it had the it had these horrible fold-out bipod legs that came out of the forearm. Um, you know, and, you know, frankly, it was ugly. It was an ugly goofy plasticky looking gun and not a lot of people bought it everybody just kind of looked eh, at it uh, savage came out with one um, it had durability issues um, it was basically the right thing it didn't have i don't think it had backup sights and it did not have the um, clip loading no scout rifle that's ever really been produced has ever fully fulfilled Cooper's uh, dream and he was pretty insistent on 30 caliber so it was like and, and of course it had to be a what at the time was called a short action uh, so it had to be a 308 a 762 NATO and the benefit of that is of course that if you're ru running around Africa or some other place there's going to be plenty of that ammunition around because that's what the military is using the military in those places are using and everybody knows the military always shares ammunition with <laughs> with people <laughs> so anyway it was kind of a 308 built on a you know short action gun with a forward mounted sight uh, long eye relief scope the um, the iron sights went away the clip loading went away and uh, you know boom voila there you are and other companies have brought out the latest one is being Ruger has got one now that's the mistake of the scout rifle was was the first mistake was it's a utility rifle supposed to be all-around rifle and that's in a world where people buy things that are suited for the task they have at hand I don't take when I'm shooting target pistol I don't take a general purpose I don't take a Beretta 92 or a CZ 75 I take my SIG P210 target okay if I'm doing something else if I'm shooting you know a heavy target I take a 44 Magnum or a 45 caliber pistol I don't I don't sit there and say I'm just going to carry a 38 special fixed sight model 10 everywhere because hey that's the most all-around deal because what I'm going to use it for might not be it's not optimized for the task that I'm probably going to use it for so therefore a lot of people don't use general purpose utility type guns so bang there there that goes the next thing is it, it was completely overcome by technology um, in the 70s uh, you, you didn't have a lot of choices uh, for for firearms especially anything that with a tactical flavor uh, you had to you just didn't walk into a gun shop and find an AR like you do today you had to order one from a distributor because people didn't really there wasn't that big a market and that had such a bad reput reputation from the Vietnam War that people didn't really want it so anyway uh, not to belabor this the the 
scout rifle overcome by technology, overcome by better sighting systems and really more suitable rifles that, that engage fleeting targets probably a lot better. So uh, that's, that's the bottom line there. Next question, why was the Soviet SVT-40 not successful in World War II when it seems like it's just as good as the M1 rifle that the U.S. used? Uh, the, the answer is uh, it was successful as far as it could be, but for, now don't take what you read seriously. A lot of times I say, well, the Soviet army conscripts were so ignorant they couldn't manage the rifle. That's that's not true. If you can if you can fire a machine gun, you can. The SVT is very simple compared to uh, the other infantry weapons that they had. You know, it just it was, especially crew serve weapons. Um, the the problem was production, and the pop, the problem was the fixed kind of fixed magazine battle rifle, semi-automatic battle rifle. Um, first one was you could make four or five Moisin Gant rifles for one SVT. When you're fielding 500 divisions during the war, you need rifles. Even if they're not the best rifle, you need them. The Finns and Germans who captured SVTs liked them and used them uh, extensively every chance they got. Uh, they thought they were excellent. So there you go. The next thing is the SVT has got... It's, it's not really a fixed magazine, but it was never designed to be magazine-fed the way we know it as in ARs or M14s or FALs or anything. It was supposed to be charger. It's more like an SMLE magazine. Hey, it's attached to the rifle. It's exactly like an SMLE. Attached to the rifle and you loaded it through stripper clips through the top of the, the action. Um, that did not give it, it... It was better than a bolt action but it wasn't so much better that it that it really created a uh, tremendous advantage, and and basically that's why a lot of those fixed magazine uh, uh, rifles went away. You know, FN forty nine um, and a few others. Eventually, the M one Garand, even though it was a much faster loading uh, system and a better system, um, but you know they they just face it, you you didn't have this tremendous the, the M1 was the only one that gave you a tremendous advantage the other the other reason I'll tell you from a shooter perspective the uh, uh, the trigger on an SVT is usually a lot heavier and not nearly as nice as an M1 rifle and the sights are not as good so that's the reason um, but it was actually a very successful rifle um, after the war, of course, intermediate cartridges, and, and they were looking forward to AK-47 and, and a few other projects. Um, the SVT was just, you know, bypassed by history. It was pretty much obsolete by then. And no one was going to invest anything into that system. Okay. Um, what is your opinion on the IMI Jericho 9mm police pistols that are on the market? Police trade-ins. Um, the pictures of them don't look that great. I mean, face it, they're all painted and, and the paint is kind of chipping away. Uh, the Jericho is not a bad design. It's based on a CZ-75. It's basically an Israeli adaptation or copy of the CZ-75. I'm sure they work. I'm sure they're fine. Uh, for the price, if you want to buy one as a collectible, I say go ahead. If you want to buy one as thinking you're buying some super secret ultimate defense pistol, 
uh, you're probably not and face it their prices uh, there's there's other alternatives on the market all right next question why were obsolete Mausers and that's in quotes used so much after the end of World War II um, you know the, the answer to that is simple they, they just were around um, at that time the Mauser was the most um, for the largest production of any rifle in the world I think it's been surpassed by the AK now but it's it's nobody really knows how many millions and millions of them have been produced so they were all over the place and if you're a country like France you're a country like Norway if you were under German occupation and now the Germans are gone and they've left all these weapons behind hey you have to stand up an army or a police force and uh, you know most of the men were trained to use bolt-action rifles take Norway for instance even though they had the Norwegian crags which were a different system than the Mauser hey they work fundamentally the same so you could quickly re-equip uh, your own national forces with these things and everybody kind of knew they were obsolete but hey they were there they were dependable they had literally had 50 or 60 years of refinement so they were good weapons sturdy reliable everybody knew how to service them so that's why they stayed around they really kind of hung around to the 1960s you know and, and even longer in in uh, you know depot storage and things so um, yeah they were just they were just around but that's why they were used uh, let's see next question what are the best gun deals quote-unquote which are around today well I'd have to say that um, quality guns are always a good investment so I, I'm not gonna name specific models really but you know quality revolvers quality semi-automatics reputable manufacturers I would stay away from the boutique manufacturers you know uh, kind of a will I, I'd stay away from like Wilson combat or, or some of these other ones they produce very very nice guns and all that but the price is high and I'm not sure that the resale value you're buying kind of a semi custom gun at that point and anything that makes it semi custom is is there uh, what you want is a gun that that um, will appeal to a broad market and um, Smith & Wesson Colt revolvers are now really good things to buy they're really good things to buy um, Colt automatics very good things to buy so that's that's what I would buy buy qual if you're buying new buy quality um, buy a sig p210 target because they're not going to be around forever and once they're gone people will want them um, so that's what I, that's those are some of the best deals I've, I've seen around for a while okay which is a larger threat to our society crime or terrorism well they're the same thing I would I would argue that terrorism perpetrated by Muslim fanatics is is crime and I would also say that street crime is a form of terrorism it's people trying to exert themselves over others terrorize others um, so I would say that they're both about the same thing so if you're if you're uh, basically hardening your life against 
street crime, you're also doing it against terrorism. Which one's the biggest threat? I, I think think they both uh, they're both there. And then you have the hybrid threat of cartels. You know, they're both terrorists and criminals. And it doesn't appear that our our government has the stomach to do the right thing, which is go down and start start killing the bad guys, which is what they need to do. Okay, here's our last question. What is the most intriguing mystery in shooting lore? Uh, I don't know what the most intriguing mystery is, but one that's always sparks a lot of debate is did Alvin C. York, Sergeant York in World War I, use a 1903 Springfield or a 1917 U.S. Enfield rifle? And um, there's a lot of things. Uh, York said he preferred the Springfield. However, his unit was issued Enfields. His son swore that he used a, that York told him he used a Springfield when he did his uh, his Medal of Honor action. So I would think that um, that that's something that no one's ever figured out. I think probably def- not definitively, but I think most people lean towards the fact that he was issued a 1917 rifle. Um, Certainly the uh, display that's dedicated to him in the 82nd Airborne Museum has got a 1917 rifle in it. Um, so it's, a, uh, it's an intriguing mystery. No one knows the serial numbers or, or anything. Is it beyond the scope of possibility that he had a Springfield? I think the answer is maybe not totally impossible, but highly improbable. So that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.